When we agree as a general principle of church that the more nudity in church, the better. Can we agree? So we're doing baptisms this morning. And last or so, so there are people that have been coming in. Thank you, Cole. Oh, watch out for the pen that fell off. We're going to use the Telestrator in about 20 minutes. Get ready. <sighs> or not. So you're waiting on my nudity story. So we're doing baptisms, and there are people who have signed up to be baptized. And then we always just invite people, if you've never been baptized, to come up and be baptized spontaneously. Right? So you come here dry, you leave what? It's kind of how that works. And so, so John extends that invitation, and this guy, I hope he's here, because this is so awesome. He's, he, he's bringing his like maybe nine-month-old son up. And normally what we do, we don't baptize infants. We kind of dedicate the parents and, you know, whatever. But he's like, I'm going to, is this the, are you dunking the kid? And he's like, yeah, the kid's going in. I said, all right, we'll take his diaper off because it'll warm up the pool. And so he peels the diaper off, and then, and then Tim asks the dad, hey, have you ever been baptized? The dad's like, no. So the dad starts to, he takes his shirt off, and literally, the whole church is going, what? He reaches for his pants. Fortunately for us, it was just to take the belt off before he went in. But there was, I've never seen such engagement in the middle of one of our worship services, where, where people just went, this is awesome. So there, it was chaos. It was wonderful. We are glad that you're here. Grab a Bible. I just had to share that with somebody because I thought that was so funny. Because we were all going, really? I mean, he's peeling. Because we like provide t-shirts. He's like, I don't want a t-shirt. He's peeling. Okay. So grab a Bible. We're going to Luke chapter 18 this morning. My wife is in full Tim Tebow grieving. So our home, now check, check this demonic action out. She's now listening to Adele, okay, which is awful. It is awful. Why do I need breakup music? I'm 40, right? There's no breaking up. And, and so literally, and, 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 and I misunderstand the word. So she's singing this song, this, I, I will find someone like you. Ooh. And then, and then I literally thought, this is, now this shows you I'm projecting. I thought she said, don't forget me. And, and the word is, I beg. But I didn't understand that. I thought it was, don't forget me, I'm big. <laughs> and so I've been singing this kind of mockingly, saying, don't forget me, I'm big, which turns out to be true, but wasn't quite the lyric of the song. Now, if you don't know who Adele is, it, like literally, it's a 21-year-old who, who, let's just be honest, is taking breakups way too seriously. And it is just tragic music. So my wife has gone from Tim Tebow mania, which was totally inappropriate, to now, to now breakup music flooding our house. And I just have to, I have to publicly stand against Adele and everything she stands for. <laughs> Go to Luke chapter, because if you want to grieve, Pearl Jam is how you grieve. If you want to celebrate, Pearl Jam is how you celebrate. That's how we do it, Gen X. That's how we do it. Now, if you're new to our community, you're probably thinking nudity and Adele bashing in the first five minutes. Yes. And those two things go together. Now, Luke chapter 18. We are looking at different parables of Jesus. And, and, and part of the problem in, in like an over-churched place like, like Southern California is that a lot of the stories in the Bible, we've heard them so often, they just really lose the scandal that they provoked in the first century. So one of the things we try to work really hard at is re-scandalizing 
these stories. Because for us, we just kind of go, oh, these are nice, cute Sunday school stories, and they're totally sanitized. And they don't allow us to sit in the uncomfortable and scandalous nature of the grace of Jesus. So we want to tell them, so even though this is one you've heard, we want to tell them in a way that kind of gets, gets us to a, a bit of a, a place of, of uncomfortability. Going, man, could it really be like that? So here we go. Uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Now, I'm so glad there aren't people like that today. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, immediately... Jesus uses an image that would have been very, very familiar. Two times a day, at nine in the morning, three in the afternoon, sacrifices were offered at the temple in Jerusalem. There was a big ceremony that went with that. The the blowing of a shofar, the clanging of cymbals, the singing of a psalm. A priest would go in, offer the sacrifices, and then burn incense to the Lord. And after that incense was burned, it would come out into the temple courts and pronounce God's blessing over the people. So Jesus tells a story about two guys attending one of these services. One of them is a Pharisee. Now, most of you know that Pharisees were the religious all-stars of the first century. These were men who were utterly convinced the way to get God to rescue Israel from Rome was by being faithful to God's written law, the Torah. 613 commandments. And the way you were faithful to Torah is that you built fences around it. So they literally added 1,500 other rules and regulations around the 613 laws to keep them from breaking any of them. So these guys were incredibly serious. And if you were to say in the first century, who are the people most likely to be considered righteous in God's sight? You would have said Pharisees. These were the people that were religious all-stars. He mentions a person on the other end of the scale, a tax collector. Tax collectors were despised because they were Jews who had sold out their countrymen and women uh, for profit. What they would do is they would collaborate with Rome to collect the taxes and tolls old Rome, and then they could just add a percentage over and above whatever Rome charged, and you couldn't do anything about it. So consider, I mean, if you're in, in like Nazi-occupied France in World War II, you're Jewish, your family's Jewish, and like the SS officers are marching around rounding up Jewish men and women and sending them to these camps, the only people that you hate more than the Germans at that moment are the Jews that would be helping them. So this is how despised tax collectors were. It'd be like me saying, hey, two men went to church. One was Billy Graham and the other was Adolf Hitler. That is immediately the gap you would think about. Hey, two people went to church, Mother Teresa, Osama Bin Laden. I mean, immediately the, the continuum would be that wide. Now what's interesting is that the Pharisee, Jesus says, stands apart from everybody else. Why does he stand apart? He stands apart because preeminent among the Pharisaical concerns is the concern to be ceremonially clean before God. And the way you stayed ceremonially clean is you avoided things that were unclean. The unwashed masses, and particularly the tax collector, were the kind of unclean things you would avoid. So the Pharisee stands by himself out of an air of superiority, 
And he prays to God. Now normally Jewish prayers were either prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of confession, or prayers of petition. This guy begins by thanking God, but he doesn't thank God for God's actions. He thanks God for his actions. God, I thank you that I'm not like these commoners, these amharets. I'm not like these other people. And I'm very grateful I'm not like this tax collector. And then he says, I fast. I know, this is painful background, I'm so sorry. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, in the written law, you were required to fast one day a year, the day of Yom Kippur, the day, the day of atonement. The Pharisees as a group added the, added the requirement that you would fast two days before and two days after each of the three major feasts. Okay, so what is that? That's a bunch of days. Six, so three feasts, six, that's eight, whatever. So it's a bunch of days. And then, did we talk about math last week? How evil math is? That's right. My wife were here, she would know. And then he says, he, he fasts twice a week. So he's like gone over the over and above that the Pharisees in general had gone. So this guy's like super righteous. And he, and he gives a tenth of all he gets. The written law said all you had to tithe was what was grown and collected from the ground. But for him it was all that he would, everything he had he would tithe off of. So again, religious all-star. Then we, meet the fair, then we meet the tax collector, excuse me, verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. Now he stands at a distance for a different reason, right? This is somebody who recognizes that he's the contaminant in the equation. If the Pharisee stood apart out of superiority, this guy stands apart because of inferiority. He recognized he has no place to be there. No right to be there. The tax collector stood at a distance. He didn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast. This is a very Jewish way of saying he was in extreme agony. Women in those days were allowed, and were really the only ones that would beat their breast in grief. So it was, was, they were allowed to be more demonstrative in their grieving. And so literally, I mean, you would wail and you would rock and you would just beat your breast back and forth. The fact that this guy's doing it suggests that this was somebody who was feeling the weight of his unworthiness. He couldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, what's interesting is the word have mercy literally means make atonement. So think about what he's just watched. The sacrifices have been offered, the incense has been burned, the priest has offered blessing, and then the tax collector says, God, make atonement, not just for Israel, but for me, a sinner. Now here's what would have scandalized Jesus' audience. I tell you that the tax collector, rather than the other, he doesn't even mention the Pharisee, he just calls him the other, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home what? Justified before God. Meaning, this is a parable about what it means to be righteous. The word righteous in Greek, in the Greek world, to be righteous meant you conformed to civil laws or moral laws. In the Old Testament, righteous meant meant you were part of a covenant community. The Pharisees had inserted the Greek definition of righteous, adherence to laws. Jesus declares righteous the man 
who didn't think he was and excludes from righteousness the man who was convinced he was already in. That would be the equivalent of Jesus telling a story about Billy Graham and Adolf Hitler and Adolf Hitler walking justified before God and Billy Graham not. You'd look at that and say, well, that's just ridiculous. There's no way God works like that. See, the force of the story is that Jesus is taking the Pharisee project and he undercuts it completely. And he actually argues that the Pharisees are farther from God because of their righteousness. What's the best way to hide from God? Be convinced that you're good. What's the worst way to hide from God? Be in touch with how evil you really are. See, so Jesus... See, you've got to sit with how uncomfortable this is. So what Jesus is saying is the only requirement to be a part of the covenant community He's forming is the admission that you don't deserve to be there. You get that? The only enemy of grace is to be convinced that you don't need any. That's it. And so literally, the guy made righteous in this parable is the guy who just admitted he needed help. But the religious all-star walks away not declared righteous in God's sight. I mean, it's so upside down. And then Jesus adds this really helpful tag at the end. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And evidently, this is a big deal because he says it all over the place. He says this same thing. The first will be last. The last will be first. Go, if you would, to the book of James. James says a very similar thing. Go to James chapter 4. I mean, notice this. We want to talk about what grace looks like. Jesus never defined grace. He just showed it, and he drew pictures of it in the stories that he would tell. And so he picks a a story where two men go up to the temple, one that the culture would have said is amazing, the other the culture would have said is unworthy. The unworthy one is the humble one. The righteous one is self-righteous and proud. And how does the story end? The only enemy of grace is the thought that you don't need any. So the man that's declared righteous is the man who recognized he had no right to be. That's it! Are you kidding? That's it? I don't deserve to be here. Yes, that's why you're here. Is it really that easy? Is, it, is God really this good? I mean, notice what James says, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 6. But God gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says, God opposes the, but gives grace to the humble. That's what shows favor means. In older translations, it says, God gives grace to the humble. Now, what does that mean? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, brothers and sisters, this is where we will need the telestrator. If you don't know what the telestrator is, and if you're old enough, now we've got a bunch of kids in here who are culturally ignorant of the, of the 80s. So like my little boy picks up a book last night and he's reading about great football players. He's like, Daddy, have you ever heard of Walter Payton? <laughs> yes? Reading basketball, have you heard of Michael Jordan? Some of you are like that. When I quote Duran Duran lyrics, and you look at me like, you don't even know what I'm talking about. 
What, what was I, where was I going with this? Oh, the Telestrator. <laughs> Mike Fratello, NBA on NBC, the czar of the Telestrator. John Madden, the Telestrator. Jesus of Nazareth, the Telestrator. Now, 2 Corinthians, good morning, young lady. 2 Corinthians, Paul is this church. See, we always talk about, hey, let's get back to the first century church. No, you don't want to go back to the first century church. These guys were getting drunk at communion. Okay, you don't, like, they were sketchy. So Paul plants a church in this city called Corinth, and then they don't think he's that impressive. There are other teachers that come in, and I know this will shock you, but they actually played favorites about who they wanted to listen to in the, in the services. So some of them liked Paul, some of them liked this guy, Apollos, some of them liked Peter. I mean, it was pretty funny. But one of the things, and I'm glad we're not like that, one of the things that happened, though, is that Paul wasn't very impressive in person. And, and back then, rhetoric and the style of engagement you would use was so absolutely important to that culture. And so literally, Paul in 2 Corinthians has to defend himself and his apostleship. And he, there's this section where he goes on a bit of a rant and he says, hey, hey guys, if you want to boast, all right, I'll boast. I've been shipwrecked more than you. I've been beaten more than you. Right? And then he says, he concludes that part by saying, I'm out of my mind to talk this way. But he says, if you really want to know what I boast about, I boast in my weakness. And then he tells a story about how to keep him from being conceited because of what God was showing him. There was a thorn in his flesh given to him. And some think it's a physical ailment. Some think it was concern for his churches. Some think it was just like a demonic influence. Who knows? But he says, three times I prayed that it would be taken away. And God said, no. And notice what God says. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Mondo, fire up Telestrator. That's not the Telestrator, Mondo. That would be my face. Now, and my face, though glorious, is not as glorious as the Telestrator. This is how this verse is normally translated. Jesus is speaking. God is speaking to Paul, and he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, look at me. The next five minutes are going to be horrible. This is not the best way to translate this, and here's the reason. In Greek, there's no personal pronoun for my. So it could be God's power, or it could be Paul's power that we're talking about. And secondly, the verb made perfect, it, that's a different word. There, the word that's used here means to be brought to an end, which is different than to be made perfect. So, let me summarize this for you. This is the painful part. There's no personal pronoun attached to power. So when we talk about whose power is made perfect in weakness, that's not clear. And then secondly, made perfect in Greek is teleio, rather than teleo. So the word actually means brings to an end rather than perfecting or maturing. So uh, one theologian argues the better translation is this one. And here's the point. God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for your power is brought to its end in weakness. Now, there's a lot of backstory to this. But for the sake of argument, let's say that's right. For your power. Now, the reason, 
if you translate the teleio brought to its end, then have, to have this be about God's power would make no sense. In your weakness, Paul, my power is brought to its end. That doesn't make any sense. So the better translation is to say, my grace is sufficient for you, for your power is brought to its end in weakness. Now, if that's right, what you have when you talk about grace is the idea, because what does Paul say? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. If you want my justification for my apostleship, here you go. I will boast about my weaknesses so that Christ's power, not Paul's power, but Christ's power may rest on me. And it's fascinating, whenever this word is used, tabernacle or dwell, it's always used in combination with this word, which is the verb in this sentence. Meaning, this is the way it should be translated because it's translated this way in every other place. God's power is brought forward when ours is limited. So the point is, God has more need of our weakness than of our strength. Now, there's a phrase that we tell each other in Christian circles. We say, God will not give you more than you can handle. And that is absolute rubbish. That is simply false. The verse is, in 1 Corinthians 10, God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. That's different. I think God will absolutely and always and forever give you more than you can handle. Because His grace is sufficient when your power comes to its end. That's when you see Him do His best stuff. That's why... I love what Dallas Willard says. You want to know where God lives? He lives at the end of your rope. Consider Gideon. Now see, this is where I hate us. We think that's a nice, cute Sunday school story. Every story is about how God works and what He's trying to do. His goal for us is to bring our power to its end because it's to those people that more grace is given. They see the sufficiency of His grace. His goal is to bring us to the end of ourselves, our wisdom, our strength, our power, our ambition, our problem-solving skills. So you take somebody like Gideon. Hey, Gideon, you're fighting 100,000 men. You've got 33,000. That's way too much. So the story goes, he takes them down to 300 guys. And we just think, oh, isn't that cute? Does God give us more than we can handle? Absolutely. Absolutely he does. Why? Well, God tells Gideon, so that you will know that I am the Lord. I won that battle, not you. Doesn't Paul say the same thing? He gives us this treasure, him in us, in jars of clay, meaning in our human frailty, so that everybody knows It's of Him and not of us. See, there is a theology of weakness all throughout the Scriptures. Who are the people most used by God? The people who are most broken by Him. And we live in a theology of strength, of glory. Who are the most successful pastors? Well, how many people do you have on a weekend? Who are the best churches? Well, if you're fastest growing. I mean, it is so antithetical to the Spirit of Jesus of Nazareth to rank churches based on how fast they grow. 
And then you have people out there, and my heart wants to do this, boasting about how many people show up. Really? Lots of people like Adele, but that doesn't mean she's any good. <laughs> Go to 1 Corinthians. And I know some of you are fans, and right now, you're angry. It's fine. When you get a microphone, and you're as popular as I am. <laughs> what kind of people does God use? See, people will tell me, hey, God can't use me. And here's what I want to say. I love what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called to be disciples. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things of this world, and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before Him. What was the Pharisee doing? Boasting before Him. The only enemy of grace is the belief you don't need it. So God opposes the proud to bring them to the place where they will admit they need help. But He gives grace to the humble. So the man who stands before God and says, I have no right to be here. Make atonement for me and pleads is the man who goes home justified. But the man that stands before God and says, dude, I'm pretty amazing is the man who leaves empty. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. How does he give grace to the humble? My grace is sufficient for you, for your power is brought to its end in weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more in my weakness. So who are the kinds of people that God uses? When people say that to me, God can never use me. I, I just want to say, okay, so before you became a disciple of Jesus, were you murdering Christians? Because that's what Paul was doing. Or did you have an affair, bring the husband back from the war, get him drunk, hoping he'd sleep with the woman you had an affair with, and then have him killed in the front lines, and then go on to write a worship manual for the church called the Book of Psalms? <laughs> or, or did you have 300 wives and 700 concubines and write the most beautiful love poem celebrating fidelity and monogamy? How was Solomon? Or how about Jacob? Hey, Jacob, you're a schemer and a swindler and you cheated your brother out of this blessing. I'm going to rename you Israel and make you into a nation. Hey, Peter, you are dumb, which gives me so much hope for me, and mouthy, which gives me so much hope for me. And you denied me three times, but upon you and this confession of yours, I will build my church. Really? Hey, Rahab, you know the whole prostitution thing? You demonstrated such great faith that you are now in my hall of champions in Hebrews 11. Really? See, it's to God's greatness that He uses us. See, the greater the disparity between Him and us, the greater the glory to Him. And maybe you've seen the commercial, and I don't know if this is a true story or not, but a celebrated pianist, and I hate saying that word because I'm always afraid I'm going to mess it up. A celebrated expert in the piano <laughs> is giving a concert in a local area 
And, and there, there's a, a young couple that brings their kid, and their kid's four or five, and just is learning how to play piano and only knows chopsticks. You've seen this? And to the horror of the parents, the kid wanders up on stage before the maestro comes out and starts banging chopsticks out on the piano. And they move to go get the kid, but the maestro comes out. And he whispers in the ear of the child, keep playing. And he begins to weave this intricate set of notes around this very simple melody. It's because the disparity between the child and the maestro was so great. It was the credit to the maestro that he could turn that into something beautiful. So our God delights in taking ugly and turning it into beauty, taking lies and turning them into truth, taking what was lost and irredeemable and redeeming it. That means brothers and sisters, that the way we approach our God has to radically, radically change. You see, I'm like, I think I'm like you. I have good days in my faith and bad days. Good days in my faith, I wake up, I have a half an hour time with Jesus. I, his praises are on my lips all day. I'm blessing my enemies. Somebody cuts me off in traffic and I literally pray God's blessing over them. My wife's a little bit cranky at me, but it's okay. I just serve her and love her. I lead a devotional at dinner. I mean, you know, I have my good days. And then I have my bad days where I get up late. Wifey's a little mad at me, so I get mad at right back at her, right? I don't lead devotionals. I'd much rather play Xbox. I, I, I go through my day and I just return evil for evil. If somebody insults me, I insult them back. If somebody is critical of me, I'm critical of them back. I mean, let's just say that's how it goes. So you have good days, you have bad days. My temptation is to think that on my good days, I'm more favorable before God. And I want to tell you the fact that we even think in good days and bad days nullifies the power of the cross. Because His sacrifice, His righteousness, His glory is all that matters in God's sight. Are we judged by what we do? Are we accountable for what we do in the body? Absolutely. This is about who gets in. And so you and I keep score. So we're trying to keep score with somebody who stopped counting. That's what grace means. So he wants to bring you to the end of your own attempts to curry his favor. He wants to bring you to the end of your attempts to score points in his sight. He wants to bring you to the end of your own sufficiency so that you might truly understand what it means to rest in his. And then when you obey out of that sufficiency, it's an entirely different thing. It's called love. Not religion. Not duty. Not performance. God is actively at work in giving you more than you could handle. That doesn't mean every bad thing is from Him. It just means everything will be used by Him. And think about that. I mean, don't we know this to be true? Our power is brought to its end in weakness. My sweet wife and I have been married 11 years. And in that time, I was diagnosed with, and I've rehearsed this, so forgive me, but it's the only story I got. I'm looking for a cooler one that involves me being a Jedi Knight. (laughs) 
right? Diagnosed with clinical depression and anxiety, which is so cool to have. It's so cool. People, like they sign your forehead. You know, when you break your arm, people sign your cast. This is so cool to have. People sign your forehead. It's amazing because you're just like, hey, I'm sick in the head. It's awesome. Or that sarcasm really didn't translate either way. Right? We've, given, we've had two special needs kids. You realize the divorce rate is 85% for just having one. We lost her dad, my dad, my stepdad. We've undergone incredible amount of transitions, and we're literally sitting there yesterday. Yesterday, we're looking at our little boy, Seth, who we talk about all the time. He has Down syndrome. He's three. And if you would have said 10 years ago, hey, this is the family you, would, you were going to have, I would have said, that's the family I do not want. But what have we seen when we have had so many things take us to the place where we have no control? What have we seen in those moments where our power, our problem solving, our skill sets just aren't up to fixing it? We have seen... The Lord Jesus, in such radical and powerful ways, I lack words to describe what our little boy is teaching us. I lack words to describe the hollowing out God has done in us to make room for more of Him. I, cannot, I just don't have the words to, when we look at our little dude to say, we can't imagine life without Him. I don't have the words when my little daughter talks about who she wants to be with at school and she says the one girl that she knows is autistic in our school. She identifies her. She didn't even have words. She just says, well, this girl over here, I want to be with her. Why do you want to be with her? Because she's different. What's that mean? She just says, well, I like kids that are different. She's six. I mean, is that the heart of Jesus or what? But would I have chosen that? Do we delight in weakness? No! Who do we show off when we want to show off Christianity's awesome? We don't show off the weak. No, look at here's our rock star. You could be cool and be a rock star and follow Jesus. Here's our athletes. You could be cool and be an athlete and follow Jesus. And hallelujah for all that. But who did Jesus show off? Here's a woman that's had seven demons cast out of her. Here's a prostitute who's going to anoint my feet. Here's a leper who did nothing but beg. Here's a tax collector who beat his breast. Do you think maybe we bought into American obsession with glory and power? And perhaps one of the reasons our churches are so ineffectual is because we simply don't make room for God's power because there's no room for weakness. We gotta have it scheduled to the minute. We gotta have the smoke and mirrors ready. We gotta have the next killer series, the next great conversation, a sweet curriculum. This program's gonna change your life. And maybe Jesus just goes, Great. You wanna do it without me? Do it without me. If you really wanna see God move, go to the third world. Those people, they don't need to be brought to the end of their own power and resources. So there's ample room for Jesus. So what does it look like for us to reorient ourselves? Not that we enjoy the process. Believe me, I haven't enjoyed the journey always. But that we value what happens in the middle of it. That we can say to all of you right now, 
who are suffering and feeling like it's more than you can handle, that's where Jesus does some of his best work. That sometimes salvation isn't getting you out, it's meeting you in. What would it look like to boast in our weakness in a community like this? Well, one of the things we try to do is we try to not be overly polished. One of the things we try to do is we try to be real. One of the things we try to do is we want to put on display weakness. And I don't know of another better way to put it on display than through baptism. I mean, Paul teaches that baptism is the ultimate declaration of the death of your old self. It's not that your old self is like disempowered or that your old self is somehow still around, but, you know, it's not as big a deal. No, no, no. It's that it's put to death, that it's buried, that old you. The consequences still are around, but the fundamental identity of your sin, your shame, your fear, your guilt, your failure is put to death. And that literally coming out of the water represents an entirely new self being born. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Do we really believe that? That you walk in a tax collector and you walk out declared righteous. Really? And the only requirement for entrance is the admission you need it. That's it. Do we really believe he's this good? So we're going to celebrate some baptisms. And, and what's so funny is these stories, I wish we could just sit for hours and tell the stories of the people who make such a dramatic step. Because this is exactly what it is we're talking about. It's just the grace. There's no better or worse than here. There's just before and after here. You get that? There's no better or worse. It's just before and after. That's it. Those, all those old identities are just subsumed under a big new one. Just one minor word. When people come out of the water, do you think the appropriate response is to stand there with hands in your pockets? Or maybe a bit of celebration might be in order. Because this is theology of weakness. This doesn't save us. Are you kidding me? Nothing we do earns his approval. The only requirement is the admission you need help. That's what faith and trust in Jesus is. The abandonment of your own power and agenda for his power and agenda. That's it. And that's what this is. So what we want to do, brothers and sisters, is we just want to continually hold out before us the, the ongoing work of God in us to keep us dependent. And we don't want to call that a bad thing. We want to call it a good thing because he does some of his best work at the end of our rope. So, John, I want you to come up, bring the band. We're going to have folks be baptized who plan to be baptized. And if you're here and somebody... What's, it's just been interesting all weekend to have people come up. We have black shirts. <coughs> Excuse me, in phlegm. We have black shirts. If you, if you need... Because uh, certain nudity is encouraged, like infant nudity is fine. Older, older nudity, we might have to draw a line at. That's why I preach with my shirt on, ladies and gentlemen, just always. Now, we want to celebrate, 
There are stories attached uh, to these men and women that are just so unbelievably compelling. We baptized somebody last service who literally became a Christian at last Easter. And the story of six or seven months later, we're going to baptize somebody who, uh, and, and the words that were used were just so powerful, has been waiting for this all to be perfect. For this person to be perfect. And just the recognition that God's grace does, it doesn't need her to be perfect. That she can just enter in as she is. I mean, that's just, this is powerful. So this is what we do as a community, okay? So I'm, I'm sick of yapping. I, I want to ask if there are any questions, but I'm not going to. Stand up.